So uh, today's text is John 16, 1 through 16. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I do not tell you this from the beginning because I was with I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send you to him. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on his way. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Perfectly clear. (laughs) While I was thinking about what to preach next, I figured I'd check out what was in the lectionary. And, of course, it was a smaller version of the text that we just read. It's this little fragment that uh, most folks do on Trinity Sunday, uh, this first Sunday after Pentecost. And usually they just do that little run in 12 through 15 about, um, you know, well, what is that? That's basically starting with, I have more to say to you that you cannot bear, and ending with, uh, you will receive the Spirit from me. And, you know, uh, it's uh, usually, it's like, uh, in my experience, it's, uh, I don't know, a bit of a a game of chicken for most uh, folks who preach in liturgically oriented church, uh, at at least because, you know, in my experience, most folks are not that psyched to uh, do sermons about the Trinity. Uh, because it, you know, rarely enters, I don't know, our thinking, our practical theology, our ethics, our devotional life. Uh, it's one of those things that we kind of, I don't know, don't we feel like we kind of know we have to believe it, but the implications of it, other than for doctrinal disputes, are not always exactly clear or important to us. I don't maybe, I mean, maybe some of you are different than me. Maybe you worry about or think about the Trinity in your day-to-day devotional life or thinking, but... You know, in a culture where, that's uh, really interested in practical application, it seems like uh, the idea that God is three and God is one and simultaneously three and one is really difficult to figure out what to do with it. And, I, you know, I asked the question of the practical application, of course, in a tongue-in-cheek manner because uh, I, you know, think and uh, I know Trey thinks and we preach as if a lot of times there are practical applications to thinking about and reflecting on and engaging big ideas. Uh, we've never kind of shied away from that and you know, the uh, series we just did on Ephesians is kind of proof, right? What was the big idea in that uh, series about Ephesians? It was something like uh, grace and God's love are more than just something that suspends a penalty for us. They're kind of like the foundation of the world. They're, uh, they, are, they are 
I don't know, at the, the, at the core of, of, of our being and how we exist and that everything we understand about ourselves and we understand about the world and we understand about our obligations to other people and we understand about our lives and all that stuff has to kind of start from, what were we calling it, the nerdiest way possible, an ontology of grace, that grace and love are the foundation of and means through which the world comes into existence. And of course, like it's not an immediately practical idea in some sense, but then when you start to think about it, a whole bunch, it has hugely practical implications, like the idea that everything that exists in the world is a gift, that you don't deserve any of it, but uh, that a God who imagined you from before time even began did not understand the universe to be complete without you being in it. And so Ephesians said, desires you and uh, celebrates you and invites you into the kingdom and all those things that, I don't know, they may not have a practical application that is really easy to pop into a commercial on Caleb or something, but uh, they do change the way that we understand and think about and engage and deal with the world around us to understand it as a gift that is given to us by Jesus in love. Okay, well, guess what? Same thing with the Trinity. To me, it's not just an add-on that helps clean up what would otherwise be some kind of messy contradictions in Scripture and doctrine. I mean, it definitely does that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. And obviously, like, having a doctrine that is reasonable is important. That's for sure, it's true. And, you know, there's all kinds of difficult things that start to emerge as, as soon as you think about the Christian doctrine of God. I mean, it just are. There's tough stuff. Anybody know this guy Anselm? Some folks do, right? Like the, the guy who kind of, I don't know, I think taught us how to think about the character of God. Anybody, for a million bonus resurrection points, Anselm's definition of God, huh? That which nothing, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that which nothing can be greater than. No, that, yeah, that which nothing greater can be imagined. Exactly right. Like, to be God, to understand something as being God, we have this kind of rule. And the rule is, if you can imagine something greater, that thing cannot be God. In order to be God, it has to be, you know, greater than all possible greats, omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all, etc. And that, like, there's this weird thing built into that definition, which is that, one of the weird things that Christianity asks us to do is that we're supposed to accept the idea that there's nothing greater imaginable than God and then also to accept that there are three of those. It's a tough logical contradiction, isn't it? I mean, it is. It's, it, and so the doctrine of the Trinity kind of emerges as a way of saying, I don't know, we want to say uh, that Jesus is God, we want to say that the Holy Spirit is God, we want to say that the Father is God, we want to say that they're each self-sufficiently the greatest, but I don't know if you read folks in kind of Muslim apologetics or other monotheistic religions vision of apologetics, they think this is a total disaster. I don't know, Mormonism is founded on the idea that this is a bankrupt idea and that we ought to just kind of pony up the idea that they're three distinct gods. But, you know, there's this really difficult doctrinal issue that's always surrounded the question of the Trinity. I've got a kind of solution for how to think about that today, and I want to uh, you know, start that solution by saying whenever we have a problem with doctrine, I'm going I'm to suggest a really radical solution that's going to blow your mind. Uh, focus on what Jesus says about it. Focus on what the scripture says about it. Focus on the way that Jesus introduces us to it and focus on how Jesus asks us to think about it. So I don't know. Uh, that's what this little fragment from John is today. And I, I want you to hold in the back of your minds what's going on about the doctrine of God in John, okay? Just like, think about it. 
I don't know, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you think about, if someone said, we're playing Jeopardy, what, is the, what does the Gospel of John say about the doctrine of God? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is intensely aware of this doctrinal problem. Because John is saying the word is with God, which implies separateness from God, and simultaneously saying that the word is God. And the beautiful thing about the Gospel of John, at least in my opinion, is that not only does John have the bravery to say those things in the prologue, but just to make sure right there in verse 8, which we should all you know, know by heart, it's one of my faiths, so like the first Greek translation you use, John says, and the word what? Became flesh. Right? So, so John, the Gospel of John, the whole thing it's supposed to do is it's supposed to kind of make the case for Jesus as self-sufficiently God. And when John uses the concept of logos, it's not just a word like is spoken, but what? It's the ordering principle of the universe. So the Gospel of John and Jesus is presented in the Gospel of John as like almost directly about this basic problem. And I don't know, like the idea of Jesus being the word, it is a very, I don't know, like, it's a very sly piece of what you can only call rhetorical theology. Because the folks who would have thought about the word logos in Greek would have thought about it exactly the way that I just said it. On one hand, logoi, logos, is like words that come out of your mouth. And so the words that come out of my mouth, we imagine they express me, they, I don't know, they show who I am, they commit me, they might uh, communicate who I am to me. But in some sense, the words that come out of my mouth are in some ways, I don't know, like a tool or an instrument I use to take something that's inside my head and translate it into some medium and get it out to you. But then there's the second sense of word, which is like, I don't know, almost exactly the opposite. Like the principle that orders things together. That, uh, I don't know, that even gives me the possibility of ideas in my head. That uh, situates me in relationship to the universe, etc. So the, the Gospel of John is like really doing this beautiful thing with Jesus as the word, and, and I think if we were, you know, we did a series on it not too long ago. I was tempted to do a series on it again, but if you like really pay close attention to how John is presenting Jesus, there's always this kind of problem that is bumping it up against the edges of the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, I don't know, let's look at this one place in, the, in, in John 16 where Jesus is dealing with it quite explicitly and see what we can learn from it, see what it can teach us about how to think about and how to, uh, I don't know, figure out what's important about the doctrine of the Trinity. So you have to read it very closely because Jesus is doing some, some tricky theological work here. So, I don't know, 16.1. The time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. And then, uh, you know, skip to three. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Okay, now... Jesus is, as I've said before a million times, Jesus is like a master rhetorician. I don't know, maybe he's also a master optometrist or engineer or any of those things. Maybe everyone just thinks he's a master at whatever they're interested in. But it just so happens here that Jesus is a master rhetorician. So there are two things I want you to focus on in verse 1 and verse 3. Okay, so the first one is, I want you to think about the difference between the people who resist the gospel who are offering a service to God in verse 1. And then the people, those same people, who are doing that because what? They do not know me or the Father. Okay, think about those two things in contrast. There's this like very beautiful but subtle distinction. 
the word for God in verse 1, offering a service to God, is theos. It's the like word for, I don't know, the category of God, the God entity, the concept of God. Okay, so the people that are going to persecute the Christians think that they are offering a service to the concept of God, to the idea of God, to the uh, proposition of God, the doctrine of God, and they will pursue that doctrine or concept or idea, what? At the expense of a relationship to God that is defined differently. Not as a concept, but what? Jesus and the Father. Those are both ways of defining or saying God, but there are ways of defining or saying God that define God as an engaged relationship with us. So right off the bat, Jesus is setting up this idea that's not immediately clear, given how we might think about the translation, that there's a bunch of people that are going to get really mad at the Christian community because they're convinced that it has the wrong concept of God. And Jesus is saying they're going to do that because they're not in relationship with God either as a father or for the son who has died for them. And so Jesus is saying folks are going to do nasty things in the name of this concept of God because they do not know, they have not experienced, the word they're even for know is a, a kind of experience where they do not know me. And I don't know, if you haven't read it before, you might go check out one of my favorite uh, pieces of literature on this, Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor, and I don't want to spoil the end of it, but Jesus comes back to earth during the Spanish Inquisition, and it's like, hey, don't, I can't believe people are doing these things in my name, and I don't know, you can imagine what the Inquisitor does with that. But the point is, Jesus is saying that here, Something's going to happen where people will persecute the Christian church because of the concept or a doctrine or an idea about God that is separated from a relationship implied by the intimacy of either the Father or the Son who has sacrificed himself for us. Now, there's a second very sly move here. Jesus is going to affirm the equivalence between himself and the Father. So in verse 3, when he says, they don't know me or know the Father... He doesn't say, they don't me and know me and the Father. What does he say? He says, they don't know me or the Father, as if it would be sufficient in order to know him or to know the Father to get what was wrong with stick into this concept of God. So Jesus has both said, the concept of God is not sufficient, but he's also asserted the idea that he's basically replaceable with the Father. That's why people have this as the reading on, on, the, on Trinity Sunday. If you read John 16's first seven verses closely, there's this like radical difference between Jesus and the Father. I'm going to him who sent me in verse 5, which implies that he's subsidiary to God. God sent him. And then you have Jesus asserting that they're interchangeable. It's kind of tough to sort it out if you really rest on it and think about it. Is God sending Jesus or are Jesus and the Father basically the same? And verses 7 through 11, he does basically the same thing with the Spirit. So verses, you know, first couple of verses, the father is both the one who tells him what to do and simultaneously interchangeable. Now he does it again with the spirit. He says, look, there's this version of the, of the same thing with the spirit. Jesus is going to go. He's going to send an advocate or a helper. So the Greek word is paraclete. And it is, uh, I don't know, nutty word. Para means alongside. And kletos means call. In the Greek usage, sometimes a paraclete referred to a person who you summoned in a legal proceeding because they were of a higher social status than you. They could testify more credibly because they were richer, more ethical, better standing in the community. 
And so they were someone who kind of stepped in to save your bacon because they were superior to you. But the word was also used sometimes to talk about a slave, someone who was totally subsidiary to you that you could call at any time. And so Jesus uses this really weird word that implies that the spirit is both subsidiary to him and simultaneously the spirit is superior to him. And I don't know, Jesus like has to go so the paraclete can show up. So Jesus is subject to the paraclete's whim, but then he's also the one who sends the paraclete when he goes. So like, I don't know, it's, it, I don't want to get too like detailed into the reading, but you see the basic point here. There's this set of verses about the triune God is how we normally interpret these set of verses. And each one is establishing the idea that they are subject to another member of the Trinity and simultaneously in charge of or able to direct another member of the Trinity. Piece of cake, right? Three and one, one, three solves the problem. But I mean, in a weird way, it it doesn't. It doesn't really help us understand the character of the Trinity, except, well, I don't know, what does Jesus say about it? This is one of those places where I think you really have to directly turn to Jesus when you don't fully understand or can't fully logically systematize everything Jesus has said. So what does he say in verse 12? I have much more to say to you. This is beautiful. I have much more to to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into the truth. He will not speak his own. He'll speak only what is hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me. He will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will see from me what he will make known to you. This is awesome but mind-boggling if you kind of unpack it. Okay, so uh, Jesus is saying here that he can't tell us the stuff that we need to know to get it, but the Spirit can show it to us. And he's saying the Spirit is going to show it to us by speaking, but the Spirit is not going to speak on its own. Which is weird, right? Because John starts out by saying what? Jesus is the Word. It's strange to say, here's the Word, who's not going to be able to quite get the message fully out. And of course, he's saying not only is the word, but everything that belongs to him belongs to the Father, yada, yada, yada. You can see why folks don't like to preach about this. Because you have to kind of end up saying these things are really difficult to understand and very tough to put together in a coherent narrative. But I don't know, like that, I think that's why we kind of need humility. And the humility here for me is, what does Jesus tell us about this? I have much more to say to you, he says in 12, more than you can now bear. The Greek words, dunamis bastezin, means literally, you do not have the power to grasp them. Uh, you do not have the ability to wrap your, your hands around them, to pick them up and use them. Jesus is saying, he's telling us, look, we can't think about it as a concept. It's a relationship we experience. It's not something that we could define in advance or maybe, I don't know, put a propositional box around it, but we might be able to experience it. Well, I mean, the only way to experience it is to think about why we cannot bear it and how we cannot bear it. That's, that, I mean, you know, that's the hardest thing to meditate on. I think it's significant that Jesus says we can't grasp the concept. Jesus, the word, the one who orders the universe is the father's expression of the word who creates us, who makes us, understands us better than we understand ourselves, creates the vision of reason that makes possible our own thinking. That Jesus says that we cannot pick up, internalize, or control the concepts that he'd have to tell us in order for the Trinity to be made clear to us. And by the way, the Spirit may lead us into the truth, is what the verse says, but it's really interesting 
that Jesus says something like the Spirit is going to actually guide us to the truth. And there's one more thing that I absolutely have to mention here that I have never seen mentioned in a sermon. I barely, I've only seen it cited in literature from folks who are not Christian. I'm sure there are some folks out there that have talked about it, but it's a really difficult thing to, uh, to point out and to think about as a point of scriptural interpretation. But I encourage you to check it for yourself on Strong's to make sure that I'm not like leading you astray or something. And I don't know, you all know that integrity to the text is my jam. So it's not something that I can, cannot mention. The word for speak that Jesus uses is, is clear. It's like the word you use for talking. But the word for speak in the spirit will speak what he hears is not the same word Jesus uses for speak. <laughs> when Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, it's the straightforward word for uh, speak, lego. It's the kind of common word for say, speak, or talk. When Jesus describes how the spirit will speak and speak what he hears, the word is not that straightforward Lego speak word. It like borrows this word from ancient Greek that is so old and so arcane. It is apolaleo. And that word in contemporary Koine Greek has one meaning. Babel. It is the word that people would have used for babel. So I don't know, if you do a direct translation, it's saying something like, look, I have things that I want to say to you, but you cannot bear them. The Spirit will come, and the Spirit will take things that the Spirit hears from me, and then the Spirit will babble what it hears from me and lead you to the truth. I don't know how to read that. I don't know how to think about it. What can you make of us? Jesus tells us things. Jesus says we can't kind of know the whole thing. Jesus is going to tell the Spirit some things. The Spirit's going to babble, but the Spirit is going to lead us to this process where we encounter truth. It's a really difficult thing to grasp or understand. We shouldn't be surprised because Jesus kind of starts out the explanation with, that's why this kind of passage in John is so difficult, but I don't know. Here's how I think about it. Let's talk about nuclear disasters and let's talk about rabbits. Nuclear disasters and rabbits. When the Russians first figured out that Chernobyl was melting down, and maybe if you've seen the documentary, you know, they made this decision to send these lightly protected firefighters in as first responders. And like, they did it because, I don't know, it was like not just, out of, it's not out of character for the Russians to basically zerg rush or throw men at a crisis, consider the Great War after all. But, you know, they like had this sense, at least from what we know from the history, that what they were doing wasn't quite as dangerous as they understood. And the reason why they thought that is that the only functioning dosimeters that they had went to this intensely low level, it was like five rads or something. And so, you know, they looked at these meters and they were measuring this five rads or whatever the limit was. And the thing was, they thought the meter was functioning correctly and, you know, it was registering something. And so they thought, well, the meter says that it's not that dangerous, so it certainly can't be that dangerous for us. The meter became the measure of truth instead of the reality external to it. They became totally invested in the idea that the tool that they had was up to the task of describing the reality that it was pointed at. And so, I don't know, like, think about language that way. What if language is a dosimeter that doesn't quite get to the level that it's supposed to get to? And we can think about all kinds of words like this that we have in our language, like, I asked Beth about this last night and she immediately jumped up with online because she's from Long Island. So like online was right, like this, right? Like first online meant 
you were actually physically, for them, physically in place in a line, and then it meant you had a kind of phone line that allowed you to use a modem that allowed you to get on the internet, and maybe for a while it meant you had a functioning ethernet cord, but eventually it got totally displaced by network or wireless or whatever, because the point is, words work by approximating things, and if we understand that words work by approximating things, we see their limits, we see how they have to stretch, we see how they have to sometimes do something that they have to do work that they're not set up to do. And I don't know, that's the whole point of the rabbits thing, I guess. Like anybody read Watership Down? In Watership Down, the language that the rabbits speak, this language, Lapine, only allows the rabbits to count to four. They've got four digits on their paws. Their word for four is hrare. And counting to four is great. It's very useful. The problem is, if you were to ask for directions in Lapine, about how to get to a place that's five houses down, or 10 houses down, or a thousand houses down, the language is too limited to make the distinction. You wouldn't know whether the place is five, 10, or a thousand houses away because of the limit that is built in to Herrera. That tool is not precise, it's not sensitive, it's not differentiated. You get the point, like there are six Lundbergs. If we went up to a restaurant and said we need Herrera hamburgers, we may well be eating leftovers for a long time because the language is too limited to express the thing that it needs to express. The point of talking about dosimeters and rare, and you know, we might think, oh, stupid Russians or, or stupid rabbits. I was proud of this. Uh, stupid rabbits, sixes for kids. <laughs> See that? Just like the, yeah, thank you. But the point is that those limits are different than the ones that we face, but all language is similarly limited. All concepts are similarly limited. And so sometimes when the Holy Spirit says things that help us to encounter and see the character of the Trinity, it sounds a lot like Babel to us. Sometimes when we encounter the being of God, three in one, one in three, three persons that are fully distinctive, each fully and self-sufficiently God, each united in being God. And it, sometimes when we think about the way that is supposed to work as a substantive doctrine, we miss the point that instead we need to see the limit of language in describing the being of God. That I don't know, like we have all kinds of different metaphors that we might use, but the point is that none of those metaphors in the, it can be accurate about it. It's the clover. That's partialism, Patrick, the doctrine that God is three parts to make one whole. Or it's like steam, ice, and water. That's modalism, Pat. But the point is, in the heated character of debate over the Trinity, I think what we need is the kind of humility that Jesus asks us to embrace, which is that we do not physically have the ability to grasp the concept. And that is not a failing on the part of God. That is a failing on the part of human reason and human language. And so making language describe the being of God is like measuring the Chernobyl meltdown with a five rad dosimeter or trying to explain the congregation of Resurrection Church through the use of Lapine's prayer. But there is hope implied in what Jesus says. That's the beautiful thing. We may not have a concept, but we can experience and be led into the character of the relationship. Jesus says he's going to go. In other places, he, uh, he says he's going to send a helper. In other places, he says he's going to send a comforter. And in this passage, he says that the point of that comforter or that helper will do what? Will help us deal with the grief that we feel over Jesus's ascent, over his assuming the rightful place at the throne. And for me, that is a hint about how we think about the doctrine of the Trinity. How do we experience in time? What, what does it do for us? And more importantly, instead of thinking it as something like a description of God's substance or a perfect metaphysically oriented account of how it is that God exists as both three and in one, instead we need the humility to simply sit at the feet of God and try and experience the relationship that we are invited into by the triune God. 
Beth says everyone's heard this Tim Keller sermon about the Trinity as a dance, so that's out for me. Also, I'm the worst dancer I know. DJs ask me not to dance at weddings, so I'm going to abandon that one. But I like to think about it in terms of art. There are theologians who ask us to try and understand the character of the Trinity not by proposition, but by turning to art. So uh, one of my favorite is uh, Hanslers von Balthasar, is this brilliant Catholic theologian who has this picture of, uh, of, of the manger of Jesus and Joseph and Mary cradling Jesus. And they're separate persons, there's no doubt, but they're also fully and wholly united in the moment. And you know what that's like if you've been in a delivery room or where a baby's been born? It translates our being into something different that is not definable by our insular physical capacity. They are undoubtedly three, but there is a oneness in their love. And if you've been smelling what I've been cooking in Ephesians, Grace and love are more than just feelings or even actions. They are the stuff out of which the world is made. An ontology of grace allows us to be differently, to find oneness in something that exceeds our bounds for talking about oneness. And in that frame, it is possible to see three persons who are different in substance, but one on the deeper and more significant ground of self-giving love. But my favorite is this uh, version of this, is this picture by uh, Rubilev. It's uh, on the wall by our kitchen table. And it's an icon that Rubilev painted to represent the Trinity. And of course, the thing that icon painters did that was cool is they said, this is a representation of one way of thinking about it. But if you think about this as the representation itself, of course, you've slid over into idolatry. So the point of a good icon is to invite you to experience the character of God without defining God through that encounter. There were lots of other ways that Eastern Orthodox folks had to represent it. These days you might think about, I don't know, the Ukrainian trident, which believe it or not is also a representative of the Trinity and one that starts with oneness. But I don't know, check out what's going on here. Each member of the Trinity bows their heads in deference to the other. Each is a distinct person fully open to the presence and love of the other. Each of the persons at that table could fully assert their prerogative as God on the definition of Anselm, that there is none greater than me. But the thing is, they share the table and they share the meal and they do not consider equality with Godhood something to be held on to. That's not just a, a quality of the Son. Each one of them instead is bound together in the unity of love. And the point of the Trinity here is not to figure out how it all works, how the three can be one or the one can be three. Instead, the point is the experience that it implies. That each of them is radically open to and affirms the existence of the other, so much so that they are brought together in being and brought together in a mutual embrace. And you could do it another way by starting with oneness as the starting point. But the reason why Rublev does it this way is because Rublev wants us to experience that out of that threeness, the possibility of a oneness emerges, a vision of the Trinity that doesn't just come about because of doctrine or substance or solving metaphysical dilemmas or even to square the different things that are said in the scripture. Instead, it takes all those things at face value and says they are true and gives us a concept that invites us to experience the character of love and submission and affirmation and embrace that is the very being of God as manifest in these three, the triune God, the measure of all things that is good and the way that it implies that we should live. Because for me, the coolest point of this icon 
has always been the way it presents the table. It's open. There's a seat for the viewer. The table is open and you are invited in grace and love. So the point of the Trinity, of each member of the Trinity and of the openness of that table is to invite all of us in to share the meal, to come out of our separate substance and to love so fully that not only are we included in, but we become united with the love of God. And as a doctrine, figuring out the hows and whys falls prey to the same problem of Russian Geiger counters and rabbits counting, and even to the limits of our language. But like Jesus said, we cannot bear it. We can only live it and experience it and be shown what it would be like. And it may feel a bit like Babel when we talk about it. But nevertheless, I am convinced that it is the most real reality of all. Amen. Oh, questions or talk?